everyone. Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. This is one of our Ask Me Anything follow-up episodes, where we answer the remaining questions from the AMA time after our Sunday service. Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, is going to answer the remaining questions from the first sermon in our new series, The Next Good Thing, with Jill Reese, who is on staff. As always, if you have any questions from listening to this episode, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. We'd love to have you join us for future AMA times on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. My name is Jill. I'm here with Nick. Hello, Nick. Hey. And we are following up from this Sunday's AMA, Sunday... Uh, September 13th, we started a new series on the next good thing. So we're going to be talking about some of the questions from the sermon, and then we have some other unrelated questions. Mm -hmm. So Nick, the first question we started addressing in the AMA, but we didn't go into it. So what are a few first steps towards moving into the heart or emotions of God? Do you have any specific resources or Bible passages to jumpstart those of us who feel the need to have our heart burning fully. Do you have more to say on that? Yeah, I, th- I think there's a couple of different ways to look at this. The, the first is um, the the preliminary act of immediate devotion to God. That, that is the response of faith and worship. That, that really has to come first developmentally. So it's where you recognize that God is calling for all of your heart, that you can't have two gods right? Both God and mammon. You'll hate one and love the other, which means you'll hate God and love mammon, right? Which is wor- which is a, a way of saying worldliness. And so there is the question of purity first, right? So that's the first step is Jesus is calling for a choice to choose him out of a purity of heart, which is the entirety of your heart as it presently is in faith. So that's the first step. Um, and then um, then you can, you have to begin to explore the God that you're loving, what all means, right? And then tending to your heart, right? Um, the Bible says that the heart is a wellspring of who you are and what your life is. It says that your heart is both desperately wicked, but also that um, it can be made a heart of flesh by the Spirit of God, like a heart that really can feel and isn't just stone. Um, it says that you can store up evil in your heart or that you can store up good in your heart. It says that it is out of your heart that your mouth speaks, that 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 the actions of your life are the overflow of your heart, right? You have to like kind of learn what what your what the heart is. And when you do study that, what you realize is there's a bunch of things in the scripture that talks about how your heart is formed. We'll talk about these in the series, but one is um, to really understand the gospel, which Michael will be preaching on next week. And um, I don't know if he'll structure his sermon around this, but Paul Tripp in his book, How People Change, he has a section on Christian externalism. So things that look like the gospel, but really aren't. And what he means by externalism is when you when you try to live out the gospel in a way that isn't about the heart, right? Usually it's some form of legalism or a disguised means of worldliness, um, but there's lots of them. And, and one of them is like mysticism. like being mystical in a way that really isn't about God changing your heart, you know? So um, understanding the gospel, not having a gospel gap, as he calls it, that whole bit is kind of a really big deal. 
Um, then you get on to issues that get a little bit more touchy where like you, you know, you've, you've, so then I think the next step would be spiritual disciplines, just taking the time to work through structurally, you're doing certain habits that will help you through repetition and recycling of truths center you on the truth of the gospel, right? Because we're delusional and we believe all kinds of falsehoods about ourselves and God. And so attending ourselves to God's truth is a huge part of that. So devotional times, reading scripture, prayer, fasting, journaling, like there's a whole bunch of ways in which we can break out of our delusional system into something that's more structured around God's truth and for it to make its way into us. Um, at some point though, I think you have to start meditating on what's really inside of you, who you really are, how you really got here. Um, and these are the kinds of reflections that we would consider psychological reflections. Um, but you will find them all through the Bible if you read carefully. And there's lots of ways in places in, for example, Paul's epistles, where he talks about the structures of our hearts, like what's really going on inside there. I think one of the reasons why people have such a hard time understanding Romans six, seven, and eight is because they don't read that as an argument about the structure of our hearts and how the law dominates our hearts and how the new law of the spirit liberates our hearts in Christ and all that. So there's a lot of what you might say, if you said it in different words, it would be psychology, but because we're used to reading it in theological words, we don't recognize that it's getting at something that's essentially a psychological truth about us. Um, Now the Bible doesn't have in, in it a lot of, clinical psychological concepts the way they're often understand in psychology now so things like bonding theory and how your parents have affected you and so on um the bible intimates some of that like that um sins can be passed down for generations and there's a lot of charismatics for example who don't talk about psychology at all they will talk about generational sin and how it'll go from one to the next yeah strongholds things Mm -hmm. like that and those ideas you know the the question is okay that is a theological way of talking about it what would be the clinical way of discussing what it literally scientifically is and the answer is well what psychologists call things like trauma or developmental problems and so on um and so to break out of those sorts of things, to get healing for those kinds of things, um, it can be useful to utilize some of the tools of psychology. Because remember, the creation mandate is to bring all of the earth um, to subdue it and take dominion over it. And that includes understanding ourselves, human beings, and the human Mm -hmm. mind and how we develop and heal. And then applying God's truth to it. That's the most important thing to recognize. Right. And um, oftentimes the psychological categories are not the be-all, end-all. Sometimes they're not even true, but they're ways of thinking about your inner life that create food for thought, and it creates new ways that the spirit can work in you and deal with stuff. Mm -hmm. And that can be very helpful. I think it's helpful to also see any sort of science or um, observational study about people um, or psychology. It's helpful to see those fields in terms of like the truth behind them and to recognize that the field comes from humans observing what God has made. And so there is going to be truth in it. And uh, I did, I studied psychology at UW-Madison in undergrad and I I was a Christian then too, still. And um, I would have people from my, my church at the time 
or other Christians that I would interact with who would say, are you still, uh, is your faith still okay because you're studying psychology at UW-Madison, basically? And that is a valid question. However, the whole, like, yes, my faith was fine because I actually found it amazing to see the truths of God through what I was reading and what people were observing in psychology. And so don't, don't throw it away just because it's secular or um, something like that, because there are truths that you can see through it if you observe it as well. Yeah. I mean, if people have followed my public discourse about psychology, they've heard me say very um, not supportive things about psychology as a discipline and psychological literature as a literature, and yet to utilize a lot Mm -hmm. from the psychological mm-hmm. field. And, and that's because, yeah, psychology has been predominantly dominated by highly secular, adver- not just secular, but atheistically focused right. thinkers um, for most of its modern history since Freud. And it has poisoned the field terribly and caused them to ask some questions and not others to when they get certain data, conceptualize some solutions rather than other solutions, lead them down some rabbit holes of research and completely ignore others, and to be in some ways very non-integrative in relationship to things like spirituality. Mm -hmm. They see spirituality as just a psychological phenomenon rather than psychology as investigating um, a wider human phenomenon or that you can find things out in psychology that psychology actually requires the resources of spirituality that we don't Mm -hmm. understand from a psychological perspective. Mm to help the problems we've discovered in psychology. So right. I, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a classic, like receive some, mm-hmm. reject some and eat the watermelon, and spit out the seeds with some. Have you know? discernment. Yeah. 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 And so, but at the end of the day, what you're saying is like all science that is, that is actually getting at the truth of the natural world is discovering mm-hmm. God's creative truth. Mm-hmm. And so psychology in principle, like every science in principle is revealing the book of God written in nature, right? And we need, it's our job then to integrate it with the book of God, which mm-hmm. is the written word of God re- that is mainly revealing Christ, right? the word of God. So, right. yeah, and that work is hard, but it's got to be done. Like God intended for us to, not to quote, add to his written word, but to mm-hmm. fill out what he teaches us in his written word, fill out the details in our understanding of the world in order to do it. And we do that mm-hmm. in physical sciences all the time. Right. Right. So, yeah. yeah. This, that is a good segue into the next question, which is why was the sermon series titled Next Good Thing or The Next Good Thing? It feels a little self helpy and not particularly spiritual. I'm curious what the point is that we're trying to convey. Yeah. Okay. So, the very honest answer with that for those of you who are involved enough to listen to the podcast is this is the title that Ashlyn and Jill really wanted. And mine were to. Um, what would you say, Jill? Stilted? They weren't sexy. I mean, um, they weren't cool. They were, they were a lot. I mean, they were. Yeah. So they yeah. Were, I mean, they were just very theological sounding, which is also good. Yeah. Yeah, and part of what we wanted to get at here was pursuing God by by pursuing emotional sanctification. What it actually looks like day in mm-hmm. and day out is having the strength of heart to do mm-hmm. the next good thing. And um, that that is the defining characteristic of us is whether our hearts are strong enough to, in obedience, choose the next good thing, whether in our own development, the further development of our hearts or anything else. And um, we'll talk about that, I think, in the third or fourth sermon, where mm-hmm. we'll talk about how 
tending your heart in Christ, in loving God with all your heart, what that, that looks like is that we structure our lives around obediences, mm-hmm. right? We, we, we live our lives doing the next good thing, whether a repetitive obedience of formation like quiet times, or whether it's a repetitive obedience of our responsibilities, or whether it's the next obedience improvisationally in keeping in step with the spirit of something we didn't expect. But at every moment of our life, what we're essentially doing is in the spirit, with all our hearts, mm-hmm. choosing the next good thing. I probably should have said that in the introduction since that's the title, you know? But honestly, I'm not a very good rhetorician. I'm a pretty good preacher. And those aren't the same thing. I because this series title is my fault, as you all now know. Um, I I do want to speak to we did want to find something that was a little stickier and that also could is stickier to people who might not be in our church already and who might not be Christians. And so um, that is one that it's one downfall of having a really heady or very theological title that someone who isn't part of the church or not a Christian yet wouldn't understand right away. Whereas something that would draw them in, we don't want to deceive anyone, of course, with the title, but something that would draw someone in to listen to more and hear what we it theologically filled out is important. Um, so that was part of it as well. Yeah, one of the things I'm always yelling at our younger preachers about is that you should start in the present, then go to the past and go to the biblical material and then build back to the present again. So if you want to say something from the Bible, like um, we have to obey the Lord, you know, it's sometimes with your communicating with people, you should start with like, look, what's going to have to happen is you're, in your life is you're going to have to choose the next good thing with all your heart. Now, what the way the Bible talks about this is it says that God has made us stewards and has laid in front of us an, an obedience, like a, a choice to do what he really wants us to do and to do what he says to do. And by embracing, embracing that, we embrace our who we are, right? And then you come back to the, so what you're going to have to do. So moving back and forth from present to past to present um, helps people sense and understand that, that God's word is working now, right? And um, part of the, part, that's part of what happens when we name series is you're trying to get a sense of the present so that in the sermon, you can then take go from the present to the historical text, but then the universal truth that's in it that was true then and is true now. And then you hit them with the now. So yeah, it, it, yeah, we're trying to be a little sexy. We're trying, it's, we're trying to make it so that if you invite somebody, they'd want to listen. We're trying to market it. Mm-hmm. All right. That's and, but there it is. So whatever. But we also don't mean it to be self-helpy. So hopefully it will get filled out a little bit more. If self-helpy means stupid. Right. Or like if, if self-helpy means taking responsibility. Yeah. Taking responsibility to do what you need to do to participate in the power that God has given us for life and godliness by making every effort, mm. right, to add to um, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, mm-hmm. godliness, brotherly kindness, and love, then it's totally self-helpy. Just yeah. not self-helpy without God. It's not atheistically self-helpy. Hopefully that was evident in the sermon today. You know, and ho- and hopefully it will be in the sermons to come. The next sermon is on the gospel and how the gospel is the center of all this. So hopefully it won't feel self-helpy yeah. in the atheistic kind of way. All right, let's move on. All right, yes. Okay, these questions are not related to the sermon. Great. This, this person it's confusing asks, time. It's also uh, we're going to get into politics a little bit. Great. 
This question is, it appears to me that the Black Lives Matter movement is expressing in its protests and riots a repaying evil with evil. Please expand on how the Black Lives Matter credibility can be established and expanded by repaying the evils that they perceive with good, kindness, gentleness, etc. So, um, Black Lives Matter um, is obviously it's a concept, and it is a group of organizations, and then it has some central representatives. Okay, and one of the things Lloyd encouraged me to do is to focus on that the second category because everybody believes Black Lives Matter. Like that's just a it's axiomatic, right? Um, black people are humans; humans matter. Therefore, Black Lives Matter, right? Um, the At central least everybody sh- that should be non negotiable. Whether yeah, or not everybody a, for a Christian. For right. a Christian, that should be non-negotiable. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to the central organization of Black Lives Matter, um, they believe in a certain revolutionary ideology that ideology ideology that is more a la Marx and his heirs, and it is it really does believe in a lot of ways that the ends justify the means, and it's partly built on not just Marxian atheism or an acceptance that you have to quote break a few eggs to make an omelet which is part of the horror of communism, but it's also based in the progressive idea that comes out of the revolutionary movement that, um, shoot, what was, I can't remember now. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. That, um, the transaction that you're seeking is a transaction of power, not truth. And therefore, um, the dynamic is oppressor oppressed, and the way mm-hmm. you you deal with a bully or you deal with an oppressor is you have to fight them. They're not going to give you freedom, so it's a it's a power conflict, and therefore what you have to do is achieve an action based on power, right? That's different than, for example, the more Christian wing of the civil rights movement under people like Dr. King or Booker T. Washington or people in that strain. The Frederick Douglass, towards the end of his life, would have fallen in this strain, which is. Um, if what we want is peace in the end, if what we want is a beloved community, that is where people in the earth live together in loving justice, then we have to win over our enemies and we have to recognize that they are probably as much people of conscience as we are, at least in a way, or at least there's a, a large group in the middle that's such that if we win over, we can then use the power of a majority to slowly slowly create the justice we're looking for without making anyone our enemy or making war, right? Now, for King, that was partly because he knew he couldn't win a physical war. There weren't enough black people. Black people didn't have enough guns. But even so, he wouldn't have wanted that. He really, I think, believed that we needed to bring people together, right? So, obviously, I yes, I do think that Black Lives Matter as a movement and as individual chapters – um will have more credibility among everyone if they use goodness, kindness, and gentleness. Yes. But not just goodness, kindness, and gentleness. They It does require confrontation and argument and making your functional opponent uncomfortable and saying the truths out loud and specifically asking for action right now. One of the ways I think the Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter has suffered as a movement is um, I actually think this was cat was this on a podcast. I think you'll actually hear this really soon. As I was talking with an African American leader recently, and I said, of all of the programs, 
right? The, the things that when black, black people have at protests gotten a microphone and they've said, we should do X, right? I said, of all of the things being said, can you think of any that are doable? Right? And it was funny because he laughed and he was like, no. <laughs> right? I think one of the biggest failures so far of the public speech within the BLM movement is the failure to have a good program to call for in specifics, right? So, um, so for example, you can say, we want police reform. On one level, it would have been better if they just stopped there. We want police reform. You guys figure it out, right? But um, there were actually some bills put forward, I think, by congressional Democrats, but heavily influenced by people embedded in the Black Lives Matter movement. And I got some copies of them because I was asked to support them by some of our African-American leader friends. And I read some of them and they're just, they're just no good. Like one of them, for, let me give you an example. One of them says that if you perceive that there was anything discriminatory in anybody calling the police on you. So like, let's say you're doing something and the, somebody calls the police to get you to stop or to get you to leave or something like that. And you perceive that it was in any way motivated by racial animus. You can sue them. They're li- the person calling the police is liable under discrimination, and they would have to pay damages, including reasonable lawyer costs. So this could be thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars, right? Now, on one level, you're like, well, okay, I mean, actually, that could be good, right? If people are calling the police for racist reasons, maybe there should be some repercussion for that, right? But at the same time, can you think of anything more chilling of anybody calling the police? Who's going to call the police, right? If you've got a bunch of civil rights lawyers that love these cases, right? And you can just drop a suit and get people to settle for a couple thousand dollars because they don't want to go to court, right? All of a sudden, calling the police costs everybody a couple thousand dollars at least, if not more. And who's going to fight these cases? And who's going to call the police? Nobody. What that means is effectively, you can only call the police on your own race. It's a terrible law. Really, really, really bad unintended consequences, right? And a couple of the other laws had similar, like, for example, um, one of them ruled out all chokeholds for any reason. Now, I'm open to that, but nobody has ever told me how you control a large human being with only a couple other human beings without controlling a person's neck if they're struggling and fighting against you, especially if they're trying to harm you, right? So, did they have to put Eric Garner in a chokehold? I don't I don't really think so. I don't think you should be arrested for selling cigarettes on the street in the first place. I think that's a dumb law, right? Um, did they have to kneel on George Floyd's neck? Of course not. Of course not. But if you're if you've got one or two police officers or even three police officers and you have an intoxicated large man that you're dealing with, and you can't use a choke. Like, here's a question for you. How did Jacob Blake not get physically subdued by three police officers? They tried to tase him twice. One of the officers was a woman. And they couldn't, they couldn't control him physically. He ended up getting up, walking around his car, reaching in for something, and getting shot in the back seven times. Now, like I asked one of my black, black, black friends, would you have rather him get a chokeholded so that they could get a hold of him? so that he couldn't get up so they could get cuffs on him because I would and he would 
he would have much rather been put in a chokehold than got shot in the back seven times, right? Or one time, right? And that's what needed to happen because he was clearly intoxicated and he was clearly a big, strong dude and somebody needed to get a hold of him. The problem is, well, what what are the, the people like, well, you should do something else. Well, what? You show me the physical move that controls a very large man that doesn't include controlling their neck and head. The only things that work are very heavy and strong arm bars, but you've got to get somebody into those. And if they can twist their body at all, they can pull out of them. Right? So there's big problems here. I told one of my, one of these African-American friends recently, and I don't know if I've told this story on this podcast. When I was 18 years old, I was a camp counselor. I was in the best shape of my life, but I'm not a huge guy. Okay. I weighed like 170 pounds. There were eight other camp counselors about my age, athletic, strong young men who decided they were going to throw me in the lake. I was within 20 feet of the lake when they descended upon me. There were eight of them. I didn't go in the lake. Do you understand? Like if you have a man who knows how to fight and is moderately strong, it's not like one man can control him. Two men can't even control him. Like the the gentleman that was going into um, bars with a baseball bat and a blowhorn and calling people racist at tables and yelling at them. And then he did it another night and somebody called the police and the police arrested him. It took like five people to arrest him. And then he got out of the car and was running through the streets. Like you can't have law enforcement. You can't function in law enforcement where it takes five, six, seven, eight people to make an arrest. Right? You've got to have a way to make arrests where there's like two people. So, so that all has to get thought through. And so because some of these BLM leaders, because they want to make what they want is for not even nine unarmed black men to die in 375 million police interactions. So how do you do that policy-wise? That's a really difficult thing because policing is a terrible thing, right? And so they want to come up with a policy that's going to keep those nine men alive. And the and the problem with that is, as far as I can tell. I know this, this may not sound good to some of our listeners. As far as I can tell, there is no such thing, right? It's possible. It's possible that if we came up with the right psychrometric testing system so that we could test for malevolent personality types so that they couldn't hide it from us. So we got all of the malevolent guys out of the law enforcement entirely. And if we could test for people who had the wrong temperament. They didn't have a nervous temperament, right? So Philando Castile, for example, as I read through that case, he's African-American guy, said he had a firearm, right? Was shot by a Latino police officer. As I read through that, this guy was the guy who shot him, like volunteered in the community, worked with minority kids. Like he seemed like a really nice guy. I think the reason he ended up shooting Philando Castile is because I think he got scared. I think he had a temperament unsuited to that kind of work. And then fear took him and he shot somebody. Right. So I think if we were able to get all of those people, those kind of temperaments out of the police force and everybody who was malevolent out of the police force, right. We could save two or three of those nine unarmed men who will die each year who are black. Right. And maybe some of the 250 men who are shot each year who are not unarmed, but still are killed by police. Maybe some of them could be saved too. I don't know. Uh, but I don't think we know how to do that yet. And I don't know if we'd have enough police officers. 
right? So these are very complicated things, and BLM hasn't been able to give good policy solutions that would make things better without making them also much worse. And because that isn't a big part of the movement, because they haven't spent time talking with police officers enough, they come off as kind of ignorant about the most important thing that they're trying to solve. And I think that's really sad. I don't think it would be that hard for them to have like roundtables, private roundtables with police officers or ex-police officers or black police officers and try to figure out how to do this well. That's that's off of – that was sort of what I was going to ask is what is a good – like you were talking about police reform, but what's a good like just next step towards like something that is more credible? Um, but also how – would we, how should we interact with that movement or talk of that movement? If, um, cause at the bottom of it is there is injustice that has happened and people are rightly angry about it, rightly in the sense that injustice should lead to anger, <laughs> but the anger needs to be like channel. It needs to be channeled into productive and righteous means and ends. And so um, that is true. We can't say, well, the Black Lives Movement, Black Lives Matter movement is just, we should throw it out because, and and that nothing has happened to produce that end. But um, yeah, I'm wondering what, how we interact with that movement as, like, I'm not in, obviously, law enforcement. So how do I interact with that? Yeah. I mean, I can only tell you what I've tried to do, right? I've Mm -hmm. tried to first actually interact with the movement, Mm -hmm. right? Like, what are you saying? What do you think? Why do you feel this way? Let me, right. So like, I've tried to like, just kind of listen to what they're saying, because there's probably a perspective gap. I, I mean, I know there's a perspective gap between a lot of white people and black people who are having different experiences in America. Now, I don't believe your experiences determine truth. And I don't think that the most oppressed people often or anywhere near always have the most accurate view of things, right? When people are like, this is my lived experience, it's true. That's actually not how truth works, right? For you to claim that because you experienced something, you know the truth. Not true. Um, In fact, sometimes the least involved people are the people who see it the clearest, right? And um, so, but it's easy to miss things. Mm-hmm. And it's and you should listen at least, and and you you got to f- try to figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. And then what I do is, I try to be as supportive as I can in all the areas where I think it is moral to be supportive. So when Marcus Allen sent me the police officer bills and said, "Hey, could you support these?" by writing to Republicans and asking them to take up police reform, I looked at the bills. I did not agree with them. Um, there was one of the bills I kind of agreed with and three that I really didn't agree with. And so I wrote the Republicans. He asked me to write and said, Hey, police reform is important. I don't pretend to know exactly the right solutions. That's something that should be deliberate deliberated in the great deliberative bodies of our house. But I would like for you to deliberate them. And so I didn't tell them what to do. So I, I did as supportive a thing as I could do when asked to, to take an action relative to what I was asked to do. And I spent time doing it. That means I spent like 45 minutes reading the bills. I tried to think them through. I, I got all the addresses I needed to write to. I typed out emails. I sent them in. Like I did the stuff, right? And it took time. I gave them my time. 
Um, but I also didn't take a political action that I thought was wrong, mm-hmm. which, because um, if I, I can't advocate for a policy that I think is going to cause um, more black lives to be hurt rather than less. If I think your policy is going to do more harm than good, I'm not going to be for it, no matter how good it sounds. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's important. Okay. I think that, I think that's important too, to try to see the good in what someone else and even the other side of what we believe is saying, because um, otherwise, I mean, it, it seems like it's something that they need to just fix <laughs> instead of how do I interact with this and how do I reach out to them and how do I learn with them and um, extend relationships. So I think that's really important. Yeah. And said. there's, listen, there's going to be a lot of disappointment. You're going to disappoint them. Like if you're like a white person and you don't agree with everything, you're going to disappoint some of your black neighbors that you're not more supportive. But listen, one of the reasons why some of my black friends like black leader friends are still hang with me, even though I don't always agree is because I always support them when I can't right. Like always. And whenever I say, I can't, I can't get, I can't get behind that right now. They go, okay. Most of them just go, okay, that's not your, this isn't your issue. Got it. Or I'm like, look, maybe it will be later, maybe a different policy, different time. Maybe you'll convince me over time that I was wrong. And, but because I've established good faith over five, six, seven years, they know that I, I'm, I'm in. I want the good. You know, does that make sense? So yeah, that's good. Yeah. All right. Let's do one more question. Uh, the next question is: How can we not be stressed and emotional, knowing some of our political leaders are not being truthful with us? As Christians, is it right to express our feelings about this while trying to maintain self control? Well, first of all, I'd like to amend the last sentence too. Is it right to express our feelings about this while maintaining self-control rather than trying to maintain self-control? I Just quit making excuses for yourself, right? So um, th- the answer is, is that throughout the entire history of the world, since the foundation of mankind, political leaders have not been honest with people. Um Sometimes it was just because they're flat liars and just seeking power and nothing else. Sometimes they're really honest people who who have been intoxicated by power. Sometimes they're inept. Sometimes they're just uninformed as to what's going on. Um, sometimes they think they're informed and they have just they're reading the wrong sources, right? So when when you say um, our political leaders are not being truthful with us, it depends on what you mean, right? There are a lot of truths that one must know to be informed in politics, probably more than any one human mind can know, right? Our government is like a two or three trillion dollar government. Now, most people don't even know what trillion means, but there are so there are like, there are millions of employees. Do you understand? All doing different things in our government, all relating to things that are outside of our government in a country of 350 million people with like a three to $4 trillion GDP. Like you have no freaking idea how complicated all that is. And no politician has any idea what's going on. Right. So it's important to recognize that like half the time they just have no idea what they're talking about. Right. Like when you see them on TV and they're in these committee meetings and they're asking questions, one of the reasons why there's so many great YouTube clips of them sounding idiotic is because they have no idea what they're questioning the person about. And that person's an expert. 
And their aides have like read little manuals and written down five or six questions and briefed them for 30 minutes before they walk in there. They have no idea what they're talking about, right? So that's the baseline. And then plus there's, yeah, there's just going to be, people are going to tell you lies probably because they can't tell you classified information and so on. So yeah, look, that's what it means to live in a, a nation. There, as I think it was Adam Smith who said, there's a lot of rot in a nation, right? Or a lot of carnage in a nation. Like part of having a country is that there's a lot of waste and power mongering and corruption. You're just trying to make that as little as you can. And the way you do that is by engaging as honestly and forthrightly as you can with self-control. Right. And that's, Absolutely. that's what we're talking. That's why we're talking about what we're talking about in this series, because um, the, the question of how can we not be stressed and emotional in this situation is the question of how we've gotten to the state of being so stressed and emotional, <laughs> because if we're relying on our emotional, or I'm sorry, environmental structures for our security, including politics or what leaders we have or how good they are or how truthful they are or however truthful we perceive them to be, if we're relying on that and it fails us and then we're stressed and emotional, that means that we need to work on something, not have our situation fixed. And that does get back to self-control as well as a number of other things that we're going to talk about in this series, but building that emotional resiliency and sanctification and those internal structures rather than depending on the external structures. Yeah. I mean, those are all big. I mean, part of it is we were just expecting that our politicians are better than us. Like, what do you, what do you think would happen to you if you went to Congress and like all these people were taking you to dinner, trying to get you to do stuff. And you knew that you could get a $500,000 a year job after you got out of Congress, if you were nice to these people, but the people in your constituency are going to turn on you in a dime. If they just like the next guy better than you and you're fundraising for two years, just so that you can run a reelection campaign and blah, 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 blah. You don't think that would mess with you, get to your head, make you power hungry, make you a somewhat cynical person who had to watch every single word that they said and maybe not always tell exactly all of the truth because you don't have time to explain it even if you said it. I mean, one of the reasons politicians don't tell the truth is because they they don't have time to explain themselves. They're on CNN or Fox News or MSNBC for one minute. They get asked some like stupidly complicated question that's not even the right question and they've got 24 seconds to respond and they can't explain their answer. Well, if they tell the truth, it's going to be complicated enough that they're going to have to explain it for like 40 minutes but they can't. So they don't. So they, they say some kind of talking point, right? Because they can't tell you the truth. It's not functionally possible, right? And so they don't. And like, once you start to understand that, like, look, you'd behave just like them. You're not better than them. The only person who's going to always tell you the truth is Jesus. Like part of it is like, just like associating yourself with humanity and what humanity must be like. And, some of these realities. And you just realize that like politics isn't going to save us. I, somebody said recently, who was it? I can't remember who it was. They said, they said recently, politics is the worst religion. There's a lot of bad religions, right? Women, men, you know, like all, there's all, you know, football, there's lots of bad religions, but politics is the worst religion. Not only because of the tens of millions of dead corpses heaped up by the places that treated their totalitarian politics as a religion, but just the kind of people it makes just P 
people that are just so taken up into politics that it becomes kind of like a religion to them. I'm a good person because I believe in this. These are the people I hope in. This is the narrative that I think will bring us to a good eschatological future and so on. Those are people are not full of godliness. It doesn't produce goodness, kindness, and gentleness at all. Usually. It's a different kind of self-righteousness or a kind of self-righteousness. Yeah. And the fruits of that spirit are not the ones mentioned in Galatians 5, right? So yeah, you just, you've got to, I mean, you just have to look at reform movements like Black Lives Matter or your politicians' behaviors or listen to an, to a certain extent, even a, in a healthy church, some stuff is going to happen that's like, just isn't right. And you, you've got to like accept that that's the way the world is and not accept it by trying to do your part in reforming it. Or it's like the reformers said, reformed and always reforming, right? Like we try to fix stuff. And then as it goes wrong again, we try to keep on reforming it more and more each day in Christ as best we can for our generation, which ironically means that we at every moment need to just do the next good thing in Christ wholeheartedly. That's very good. Um, okay. We have, we did have a few other questions. One of them is on Hebrews 12, which, uh, it, it does have, it's a passage on discipline, but it also has to do with healing. And so we might get to that when we talk about that in the series, I think in week five. Um, and then we also had a question about what are some of the pitfalls for a man of re- remaining single into his late twenties? Nick, I don't know if you want to get into that right now, or if you want to put point people to engage the, um, Escaping Babel podcasts um, or Optic I mean, podcasts l- listen, that you've I already think, done. Uh, uh, is it? I can't remember. It's Meg something who wrote the book, the twenties book. What's that book called? Oh, the Defining Decade can, by Meg yes, yes. something. Anyway, read any everybody who's in their twenties, mentoring people in their twenties, going through. Like, I really would recommend that book. There is a TED talk, but it doesn't really do justice to the full argument of the book. And I just, we should probably should do like a book talk on that sometime. She's not a Christian, but she's dead on developmentally at what the twenties are for. And I think if you um, interact with some of the content in that book, it will, um, it'll, it'll let you in on some pitfalls to being single in your late twenties. Generally speaking, if you're single throughout your twenties and early thirties, um, having things your way, controlling your own space and controlling your life and that leading to profound functional um, mechanisms of selfishness. Um, and having things on your own terms uh, is one of the big things that creeps in. So combating that is a big deal. Yeah, it depends on why you're single, really. And uh, we do get into that. We, we've we recorded some podcasts called Escaping Babel. I think it's like in the 70s-ish of number of episodes. Yeah. And, and um, before the single people all sent shoot rocket-propelled grenades at us, what Jill <laughs> means is if you're single and wish to not be. Right. Um, sometimes it's because you haven't found a suitable person, but there's nothing wrong with being single because you choose it. Mm-hmm. Um, or you see the good could be done without the responsibilities of family. There are great responsibilities to order right. your life around other than f- making a family mm-hmm. though in Christian faith, finding a suitable person to marry and having a family is normative. That is the, the vast majority of people can and should choose that. Mm-hmm. But singleness is greatly revered in Christian faith and, sh- and that should always be respected. Right. And then it's not a pitfall. 
if it's for the right reasons. But as the questioner said, there are pitfalls on that. Every Mm -hmm. path in Christ has pitfalls. Mm -hmm. And one of them, if if you're single in your late 20s, is that you can become insular and controlling and selfish. Because because you don't have to serve everybody else around you. You don't have a family that's like ripping up your life. And so you can control everything and have everything your way. And uh, so you you're gotta, saying re- you got to combat that. So you're saying regardless of the reason you're single, the pitfalls can still be that. Even if it's a good reason that you're single, you can yeah, still Yeah, I think for everybody for everybody who's single into their, you know, into their middle and late 20s and 30s and so on. And, and that you, when you don't have family like beating up against your personal space every minute, right? Um, yeah, you have the ability to control your life and that can lead to selfishness. Also, pe- single people in that era also tend to struggle with loneliness, um, whereas people in families tend to struggle with finding time to be alone and to have its benefits. So they're just kind of opposite struggles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, I think we are done for tonight. Great. All right, guys. Thanks for asking questions. I I really want to encourage you. Like uh, I've had some trouble getting, I have so much in my heart and mind about pursuing full heartedness in Christ, experiencing emotional sanctification and through that, doing the next good thing. It's been, it was really hard, especially today with the intro to get everything like just down to like a 30 minute sermon. Um, But I just want to encourage you to like, whether or not I am able to produce super sexy sermons, for this series, man, hang with this content. It is some of the most important content that I will do in my ministry. And um, I'll come back to some of it at times, but I I really think that this is an important thing. And I, I don't just think it's an important thing in the Bible. I think it's an important thing that we need in this moment of our lives in 2020 in Madison as a church and as people. So I just want to encourage, encourage you to hang with it. Yeah, I do. Th- I think it's a work of the Spirit. And getting us ready. Um, one of the things you said, Nick, about this series is getting us ready for anything. And I think that you're right that this, <laughs> our culture is sort of a trauma factory or at least a cold-hearted factory, um, which leads to wounds for people and, um, and harm of one another. And we're seeing that everywhere. And so if we can become full-hearted and we can bear that weight in ourselves, we can bear it for other people. Too, and we will become healers as well, not just Nick doing the messages or the people who are counseling, but we can all, we can, that can be true of all of us to some extent. So I'm excited about it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Nick. We will see you guys next week. Bye-bye. listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.